I really specialize in the most sensitive people. Most people, by the time they see me, they've seen at least 10 practitioners, if not more. Welcome to the Longevity Blueprint Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Gray. My number one goal with the show is to help you discover your personalized plan to build your dream health and live a longer, happier, truly healthier life. You're about to hear from Dr. Beth O'Hara. Today, we're going to dive into histamine intolerance, mast cell activation syndrome, and even dive into the world of mold toxicity. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the Longevity Blueprint Podcast. Today, I have Dr. Beth O'Hara, who is a functional naturopath specializing in complex chronic immune conditions related to mast cell activation syndrome and histamine intolerance. She's the founder and owner of Mast Cell 360, a functional naturopathy practice designed to look at all factors surrounding health conditions, genetic, epigenetic, biochemical, physiological, environmental, and emotional. She designed Mast Cell 360 to be the kind of practice she wished had existed when she was severely ill with mast cell activation syndrome, histamine intolerance, neural inflammation, Lyme, mold toxicity, fibromyalgia, and chronic fatigue. Her mission today is to be a guiding light for others with mast cell activation syndrome, histamine intolerance, and these related conditions in their healing journeys. Through her mast cell 360 root cause process, she discovers the unique root factors affecting each of her clients' health issues, building a personalized, effective roadmap for healing. She holds a doctorate in functional naturopathy, a master's degree in marriage and family therapy, and a bachelor's degree in physiological psychology. She is certified in functional genomic analysis and is a research advisor for the Nutrigenetic Research Institute. She presents at functional medicine conferences on mast cell activation syndrome and histamine intolerance, as well as the use of genetics and biochemistry in addressing chronic health conditions. Wow. (laughs) So welcome, Beth, to the show. Thank you so much, Stephanie. It's great to be here. And I'm excited to dive into this because I often find that um, talking about mass activation is a game changer for a lot of people. It really is. And I found that that has helped many of my patients. And I, I should call you Dr. O'Hara. So I apologize for that. Please call me Beth. <laughs> so your journey started as Beth before you became Dr. O'Hara, actually. You had to walk with a cane by the time you were 28 and you were bedridden for quite a while. So can you share with us the story, what you've been through and how that got you into, we'll just say looking much younger as compared to looking older? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was quite the journey and parts of it were a bit of a nightmare. So my story was quite an intense journey, and it really started when I was seven. My family moved out to the country and into this um, old farmhouse, and I thought I was really into reading Laura Ingalls Wilder, and I thought that, you know, this would be that kind of adventure. And parts of it were really fun and, and great, but what I didn't know at the time, none of us knew that that house was full of toxic mold. I also didn't know anything about Lyme disease back then. So I was, I played outside all the time, had numerous, numerous tick bites. Um, I'm pretty confident I've had Lyme, Bartonella, and Babesia. And my health issues just continue to accelerate as I was a child. Um, My mother took me from doctor to doctor. Nobody could figure out what was going on other than somebody did figure out I should be put on a lot of antihistamines, Mm -hmm. which helped quite a bit. I would itch. I'd have hives. I'd be scratching my eyes all the time, sneezing, I had asthma. I was kicked in the head by a horse when I was nine and had a brain injury. And then that set off a whole series of things. And this journey just kept continuing like that until... 
um, as you mentioned, I, I just kept getting more and more ill. And when I was in college, my dream was to go to medical school. And I had a full scholarship, which is kind of rare to get. And the most probably devastating thing of my life, one of the most devastating was I had to turn it down mm. because I was so ill. And I knew that if I did make it through the four years of medical school, there was no way I was going to make an 80 hour a week residency. Mm -hmm. So I took this whole other journey of being a chronically ill patient and eventually got to where I just couldn't hardly get out of bed. At age 28, I started having to use a cane to be able to walk. And it was weird. It would be during the winter and then it would get better in the summer. It took until I was about 35 years old to realize, and I'm in my 40s now, but it took until then to know that I had mast cell activation syndrome and then even longer to know I had mold toxicity. And so there were about 15 years of being just severely ill, unable to work much and sometimes being really bedridden and not able to work at all. But, and, and I just went to so many practitioners. I probably saw, I stop counting at 50. And I stopped counting at when I had spent over $150,000. I know it's way more than that now. And nobody could figure this out, but I finally hit on mass activation syndrome. Yasmina Kellenston was somebody I was following back then. Figured out I had histamine intolerance, I had oxalate issues, I had mast cell. And then started putting the pieces together and how to address this because nobody had this figured out at the time. And it's taken quite a lot to put that together. The last piece was the mold toxicity and realizing that I'd had about 20 years of mold toxicity exposure through that old farmhouse and then different workplaces and, and different places I had lived, especially in college, living in um, mm -hmm. less expensive housing and what I could afford at the time. Wow, you've been through a lot. I have to ask, were any of your family members sick also? There have been some different health issues. No one was as ill as I was. And I think part of that, a big part of that are the genetic differences. Yep. And so um, my, my sister is a half sister. And so we had different fathers. And I sure. think that was a big part of the genetic differences. Sure. Um, nobody was as sick as I was at all. Took you a long time, but thankfully you found some answers and now you're shedding hope, light on others who are experiencing um, similar struggles. So let's break down what mast cell activation syndrome is, because I don't think a lot of patients and practitioners really know what this is, but also differentiate this from histamine intolerance or discuss the overlaps. Can you talk more about that and symptoms one may be experiencing if they have these conditions? Yes, for sure. I'd like to start with histamine intolerance because it's a yeah. little simpler. Yeah. So histamine intolerance, most people have heard of histamine. And if they have allergy symptoms, they might grab an antihistamine. So histamine intolerance is where the body has trouble breaking down histamine, the histamine levels that are there. And it can either be because there's too much histamine inflow from eating a lot of high histamine foods or the body overproducing histamine, or that the histamine degrading enzymes are not functioning properly. That can happen from gen for genetic reasons or nutrient depletion, medications, things like this. So that histamine builds and it can cause a number of different symptoms because of all the roles histamine has in the body. So histamine has a role in digestion and activating stomach acid. It works as a neurotransmitter, helps regulate sleep-wake cycles, and it's really involved in the inflammatory response. 
So we get a lot of overlapping symptoms with histamine intolerance and mast cell activation. The classic of both are going to be things like itching, um, sometimes rashes, hives, loose stools is very common, but sometimes people will have constipation, can have heart palpitations, can have mood swings, depression, insomnia, anxiety, depending on which systems are being affected. Mast cell activation syndrome is related, but much more complex in that um, what I know you, you know, but some of our listeners may not know that those mast cells are the frontline defenders of the immune system. And so they're out there sensing for pathogens, for toxins, and they have over a thousand receptors on the outside. So they can respond to so many different things, even things like electromagnetic radiation, mm -hmm. they can respond to mold toxins, pathogens, other than mold, all of these different things. And the mast cells have over a thousand different mediators that they can release. Histamine is just one. So we have cytokines, which is really popular word that all of a sudden most of the world knows now, mm -hmm. but um, people didn't know about cytokines before we got into everything that's happening in the world currently. Um, interleukins, prostaglandins, there's tons of different inflammatory mediators. And the mast cells job is when there is a pathogen like a bacteria or a virus or a mold spore, or if there's toxins, if there's injury, their job is to go in create inflammation to surround that invader or that toxin, or even part of the um, recovery from injury a lot of people don't know about is that you have to have some inflammation there. So most people's experience of the mast cells are when they've had like a cut or a splinter or a piece of glass that got stuck in their skin and they didn't get it out fast enough and then or didn't clean it out and you'll get that redness, puffiness, sometimes mm -hmm. you get itchy. The mast cells are a big part of that response, creating that. What happens in mass activation syndrome is that there's been too much constant onslaught on those mast cells. There are some genetic markers that can contribute. So there's uh, genetic based and most mass activation syndrome is secondary. It's not genetic based, but there are a lot of markers that can be involved. So I think of it like if you have guards of a castle gate and those guards are doing their job they should be able to you know be on duty for eight or 12 hours and then go rest but in mass activation syndrome and what's happening in our world now is we just have this constant parade of toxins coming at us electromagnetic fields mold toxicity has become much bigger issue than it was 50 years ago so you have all of these different things coming at the mast cells we have more um, issues with infections so the mast cells aren't getting a break. And when they have to be on guard all the time, 24 seven, it's like the programming gets dysregulated. And so they become hyper responsive and inappropriately responsive. So instead of just targeting those toxins or those pathogens or that injury, they can start targeting across the board. So I say, instead of just shooting at the enemies, now they're also shooting at the butterflies. So it's not the mast cells that are at fault there, they're doing their job to protect us. They're doing the job to keep us alive and as healthy as possible. Because if we just wipe them out, then those toxins and pathogens have free reign in the body. And that's not a good situation. And I think that's why I got so ill because I was on so many antihistamines and mast cell stabilizing medications. And the mold and the Lyme, the Bartonella, the Babesia had free reign in my body. So I felt so much better for about three or four years. 
And then I really started going downhill. And I've seen that over and over in my practice as well. Very interesting. So many things I want to comment on. I want to go back to <laughs> symptoms for a moment. So uh, when I think histamine, I think redness, like you mentioned, right? So that's actually, we have a great response. Our body is designed, right? When you have a splinter, you have that redness. That's a good thing. <laughs> um, so when I think histamine intolerance, I also think flushing, like a lot of patients mm -hmm. who get very red. I've had some patients whose whole body is just red. They're so mm -hmm. flushed. And then I think mast cell activation syndrome, yes. <laughs> right? When the patient's that red. Also headaches, and then I see a lot of vertigo and just kind of unexplained dizziness. Do you, would mm -hmm. you agree with those too? Absolutely. Migraines, there, there's so many symptoms, it would be hard to even go through them all. Because part of the criteria of whether it's mass activation syndrome is, is are these symptoms affecting two or more systems? I have people in my practice, I have um, a woman I'll call Jane, and she has anxiety, insomnia, and digestive issues like acid reflux and diarrhea. So then I have Brian, I'll call him Brian. He doesn't have those symptoms. He has heart palpitations, he has rashes, he has hives, um, trouble tolerating supplements. So we can get very different, different presentations in mass activation syndrome. And I think that's why it's taken so long for people to realize what's going on but, and it's also been thought to be very rare for a long time. But the truth is that the studies are showing between nine to up to 17% of the general population are dealing with mast cell activation syndrome, which is huge. It's like one in 10, or maybe even one in eight, one in seven. And in the chronically ill population, I think at the very lowest it's 50% or more because anywhere you have inflammation, you have a mast cell involvement. Sure. Uh, maybe I'll stay on that topic for a moment. So talking about the the different criteria patients have to have to meet full-blown diagnosis. When I first started learning about this years ago, I would send patients to a university that was close to us. So I thought, oh, surely they'll know how to diagnose this. Surely they'll be able to help this patient. And nine times out of 10, the testing that they would have run, the patient would not fail. And so the patient would come back to me and I said, I really, really think you have the syndrome. <laughs> but at that point, I didn't know what to do for them. Right. Yet they're failing the conventional criteria and so then the patient's left back at square one so can you talk about why many times testing is negative on these patients yeah that's a i'm really glad you brought it up because it's a huge problem and what people need to know is the diagnostic criteria wasn't even official until 2016 so this is considered a newly understood condition and part of that diagnostic criteria is what we talked about, symptoms in more than two systems. Yep. Somebody has to respond to antihistamines or mast cell stabilizing medications, but they often have fillers or other ingredients that are triggers. So a lot of people react to them and can't take them. And then I'm assuming the exact same statistic you are. Only 10% of people are having positive lab work that is part of that diagnostic criteria of whether you have mast cell activation and the reason is because these mediators are up and down in the blood or even in the urine very quickly. Sure. So they might be elevated for 15 minutes and then back down again. And I've heard of practitioners who are doing testing in office and they need to get the diagnosis for insurance coverage, having their patients right. in the office for eight hours having them do things to provoke, provoke. <laughs> yeah. and which is not a great idea for people who are really sick. 
but that's what they have to do just to get the insurance coverage. And then they're testing every hour on the hour to try to get a positive marker. So that, wow. that tells me something's wrong with that criteria. It needs some more work. Totally agreed. You may have heard me mention the nutrient DIM on several episodes, and I want to take a moment to describe exactly what that is. When I was in graduate school, my doctorate focused on estrogen metabolism. Now, you're probably wondering what that even means and why it matters to your health. Well, research has shown that our risks for fibroids, cysts, and breast, ovarian, uterine, prostate, and colon cancer can all be linked back to estrogen, but it's not the levels of estrogens that can increase our risk. Instead, it's the way our bodies handle that estrogen that matters. We can run individual lab tests for this, which I often recommend to my patients. That's called estrogen metabolism testing, which has to be done in the urine. Even without the test, however, it is safe to take a supplement and extract of cruciferous vegetables to improve your estrogen metabolism. That's basically like taking in six pounds of those veggies per day in a capsule form without the gas. That supplement is called DIM, D-I-M. You can also use methylated B vitamins as well as specific targeted antioxidants like resveratrol to help improve your estrogen metabolism and help protect you from that cancer risk. Of course, also make sure you have your practitioner run a comprehensive genetic analysis to see from another perspective if you are at increased risk and help you learn what you can do to lower that. If you're interested in learning more about DIM, read chapter six of my book, Your Longevity Blueprint, and check out our product info sheet at yourlongevityblueprint.com forward slash product forward slash DIM. To get 10% off DIM alone or 15% off our estrogen detox bundle with DIM, methylated B vitamins, and antioxidant support. Just use the code estrogen detox when checking out at yourlongevityblueprint.com. Now let's get back to the show. I want to go back to something else that you mentioned. So you mentioned patients can have histamine intolerance for a couple different reasons. One for consuming foods high in histamine. And I'm thinking about the lunch I had today. It's very high in histamine. It was a healthy salad, but everything I put on it, avocados, everything I put on it was very high histamine. But they also could have a deficiency in the enzyme needed to break down histamine. And I believe in my past, I had a much stronger histamine intolerance than I do now when I was eating a lot of gluten because my understanding is that gluten will essentially rob your body of deamine oxidase as well a condition called SIBO which I've had so mm-hmm. I my body I didn't I didn't have the deamine oxidase I needed to break down the histamine <laughs> um, so let's let's talk about those two separate things so first can we go through foods that are very high in histamine that these patients should be minimizing or avoiding yes and I want to preface it by saying in my practice I see Maybe about, now, now my practice is mast cell activation, so I'm not seeing all the people that just have histamine intolerance. Sure, sure. But I do see about 5% of people that only have histamine intolerance. And maybe 10% of people in my practice only have mast cell activation, they don't have histamine intolerance. The majority of people in the middle have both. Okay. And part of this is because anytime, so diamine oxidase that degrades histamine in the gut, Anytime we've got inflammation, it's going to be affected. And then there are a number of medications and even supplements like curcumin that decrease diamine oxidase. A lot of antibiotics decrease it, a number of um, antidepressants. There's a huge class of categories that affect that. Then we have the other enzyme, the HNMT, and that enzyme, histamine in methyltransferase, is dependent on methylation, and it acts more systemically. 
then we have these minor ones. So, and there are genetic variants <laughs> for both of those enzymes that you just mentioned. Exactly. <laughs> that we yeah. can check patients for. Yeah. yeah. And so those high histamine foods, especially part of what's going on right now, is that we have these kind of food fats, healthy food fats. So some of the big ones are um, spinach. And I see how people come in sometimes that have been put on by a well-meaning nutritionist mm -hmm. who wanted to boost iron or, or whatever and had people do spinach smoothies. And spinach is one of the highest histamine foods. And some of the other highest histamine foods are going to be things like pineapple and strawberries that are quite healthy. Mm -hmm. um, ground meats are going to be higher histamine. Fish is higher histamine. And then we have other things like kombucha, which is such a popular thing right now. But it's high histamine as well as fermented foods are high histamine. Most probiotics on the market have two histamine raising strains in them. And so that can be a reason why um, some people don't tolerate probiotics. But these are things that are become very popular culturally. And it's not that they're bad foods. And it's not that those probiotics are not good probiotics. It's just if you have these conditions, then these aren't going to be the best. And you want to choose lower histamine berries like blueberries and blackberries. And you can do, instead of ferments, I'm, I'm working on a low histamine ferment. I haven't gotten there yet, Ooh. but I'm working on that. And um, I've been talking with some people who are really into that world and have some information. So I'm hoping to work on that this year, but we, ha we have to watch those, those foods. And that made a big difference for me and does for mm -hmm. a lot of people in my practice, not everybody, but just to take that histamine load down. Mm -hmm. And when people have mast cell activation syndrome, we have to remember that the mast cells have histamine receptors on the outside. So even if somebody doesn't have histamine intolerance, if they're eating a lot of high histamine foods, those can still trigger those mast cells. So what about the, the enzyme again? So obviously we need to work on reducing gut inflammation, right? So in my case, that was removing the gluten, um, treating the SIBO, removing that inflammation so that my body could make more <laughs> deamine oxidase. But in your practice, do you also supplement that? Do you recommend patients take that, that enzyme? I, I do. And we, we have to be careful because the old formula, which is still out there, the old diamine oxidase formulas, had talc and shellac and some things that are often aren't as well tolerated. So this was um, a diamine oxidase capsule that had little pellets in it. So people would know for sure if that's the formula they have, their little yellow pellets. There's a new formula out now that is much more suited for people with mast cell activation. I do use it a good bit, but I'm still having people react to it. And it's because the ascorbyl palmitate, I believe it's because this ascorbyl palmitate that's in it is, uh, that's a form of vitamin C, but it's from a fermentation process and also from corn. And so what we're in the process of developing and should be out pretty soon is a very specific diamine oxidase for people with mast cell activation and, and histamine intolerance that, that are super sensitive. So this is going to be a new one on the market that's coming out soon. So then that enzyme, when patients consume foods still that have histamine. I mean, a lot of foods have histamine. Yeah. <laughs> um, even if you're consuming the lower histamine foods, the enzyme will help those patients break that histamine down so they're not as negatively impacted, correct? Exactly. And 
the, just the act of eating produces histamine in the gut. So that's something that we have to keep in mind as well. So the best thing to do with the diamine oxidase is to take it about 10 to 15 minutes before eating. So it gets in the gut ahead of the food. The capsule can get dissolved. It won't, though, if somebody wants to go you know, all, all out and have champagne and wine and lobster and these kinds olives of olives and pickles. Olives, <laughs> then it's not going to um, degrade all of that histamine. So we still want to, if, if people have mass activation histamine intolerance, we still want to eat responsibly. Of course. But I'm finding it make a huge difference in people that are having trouble eating, reacting to a lot of foods. Yeah. And also, every once in a while, somebody does need a treat. So lobster and champagne is mine. <laughs> <laughs> so once a year, I'll do that maybe on my birthday. But I'll have, usually I'll take about six to eight capsules beforehand wow. to try to keep up with the load so you titrate your dose accordingly based on your histamine load essentially for that exactly yeah. when i started practice 10 years ago and I, I started learning about food sensitivities i thought you know everybody has food sensitivities which a lot of people do however when you have heart racing after a meal maybe it's actually not the gluten maybe it's a histamine in the meal so i, I started kind of learning this is something we really need to be exploring in in our patients and it served them very well thankfully yeah. <laughs> so, um let's talk a little bit actually i want to go back to another supplement what is your what are your thoughts on quercetin do you use many mast cell stabilizers and what are your top favorites I do use um, a lot of supplements. It depends on the case. So quercetin is really well tolerated by about half of people that I see in my practice and not by the other half. And the reason is because quercetin is a methyl compound. So that quercetin is going to contribute to methylation. It has to get broken down by an enzyme called COM-T, which I know you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. So I find that when people are over-methylated, and particularly when people have mold toxicity, their methylation, there's a lot of changes that happen. They can either be very under or very over methylated. So sometimes I can get a sense, not always, but sometimes looking in the genetics, checking the COM-T, asking about the symptoms. If they have a lot of anxiety and insomnia, I won't usually use it. But if somebody doesn't, if they're more even keeled and they're sleeping okay, then we might give it a go. So that quercetin has some pros and cons depending on the person, but for the right person, it's fantastic and people typically do really well with it. The trick on it is that it's absorbed better if it's taken with fats. And so sometimes even people open the capsule into some kind of olive oil or whatever type of fat that they'll tolerate, but I mostly tell people to take it with a meal with some fats. There are a lot of other supplements that are very helpful. And one that I have people try quite a bit is perilla extract. Never heard of it. Tell me more. <laughs> so perilla extract is high in luteolin and rosmarinic acids. Those are both very helpful for supporting mast cells. So I really like that. It's a little tricky to find. Is that better tolerated in more individuals than quercetin then? I do find it, yeah. Uh, another one that is... Well, some of the, the really important ones are things like vitamin A, vitamin D, vitamin E. With vitamin A, so many people have the BCM01 variants that converts the beta carotene to retinol. And so the form that I usually use, um, because that pathway may not be working fully, 
is vitamin E acetate, which is a natural form of vitamin A, instead of um, there are other forms of. I'm blanking on what the synthetic kind is. Like the but, carotenoid, just the carotenoids? No, not the, the carotenoids are very helpful. Okay. But most vitamin A supplements that aren't beta carotene are synthetic. And so I find that the... Um, acetate? That vi vitamin A acetate is usually tolerated a little bit better. And I'm going to actually get into a lot of this in a master class that I'm launching in, in August. And I'm going to step people through the top eight supplements that I use and, and talk really about what these actions are and how people can determine whether that might be a good fit for them based on what kind of symptoms they have, what kind of background that they have in their health history. I love that. That's so exciting because there are just these little snippets that, you know, you, you think everyone would benefit from quercetin, but clearly they don't. There are these little clinical pearls that only practitioners like you really know who have been treating patients for a long time. <laughs> no. When I, I really specialize in the most sensitive people who most people, by the time they see me, they've seen at least 10 practitioners, if not more. So it depends on the, the type of practice. If it's more of a general practice and people aren't as severe, quercetin is probably a great go-to. Sure. But when you've got people that nothing's making sense and they're having paradoxical reactions, then it's usually not my first go-to. Sure. Well, you mentioned that you that mycotoxins and treating yourself for those was a big part of your healing journey. So that is one of the common root triggers that I find for mast cell activation syndrome. I want to dive into that a little bit, but do you want to list some other common triggers and then maybe we'll focus on mold for a little bit more? Yeah. The mold toxicity is by far the largest root trigger that I see. It's about 80% of my practice. And I would have never guessed it until I started looking for it. And it's, it's just amazing how huge it is. But any kind of chronic infection is going to be a mast cell trigger because of how the Th1 and Th2 parts of the immune system work with the Th1 side for people who are not aware being the, the pathogen sensing and pathogen killing side. And the Th2 side is involved in long-term chronic inflammation. So whenever we've had infections that we can't resolve, then what happens is the Th2 side takes over, but the Th1 side comes down. So we have less ability to fight off pathogens and more and more inflammation. So I see that pattern quite a lot. And mold toxicity makes that even worse because of how much it dysregulates the immune system and mm -hmm. dampens it. Some of the other triggers, so foods are a big one. Um, I talk a lot about histamines. I also talk about oxalates and lectins. Lectins, um, actually the mast cells have a receptor that lectins and food stock on. And lectins are things like our nightshades, like potatoes, tomatoes. So a lot of people have been told to avoid, the, avoid those because of arthritis. And that's part of why is the lectin component. Wheat is very high in lectin. And one of the reasons why people can have trouble tolerating wheat, a lot of grains, um, things like sunflower seeds, pumpkin, so on. So we have those foods, we have pathogens, toxins are huge. So I run a chemical toxin panel on people, take a look at what we're seeing there. Hormone dysregulation, huge. And I know that's one of your primary areas there. And at anytime we're estrogen dominant, even in menopause, that's a mass cell trigger. Estrogen increases histamine and then histamine increases estrogen. So it just mm. becomes a cycle. But cortisol and progesterone have really important 
mast cell stabilizing effects, also DHEA. But when we have excess estrogen or not enough um, progesterone in relationship, or if there's too much testosterone, that's a trigger. So we have those. One of the biggest ones also that I see is stress and trauma. Mm-hmm. And I always list it last because when I list it first, people stop listening to me. So I, I save it for the end, but it's one of the biggest pieces. And I find in my practice that about 50% of the healing process is addressing the nervous mm-hmm. system, the parasympathetic, the limbic system, calming that down. And because mast cells are so intricately entwined with the nervous system, it's so much so that I've done experiments where I've ruminated on something and one of my biggest first symptoms will be my knuckles will swell. And I can tell how my muscles are doing by how my knuckles look in my hands. And now if I start ruminating and get stressed in about two or three minutes, my knuckles are, are in, um, swollen and red. And then I can switch into a breathing meditation practice. And in about five minutes, it's gone. You have a good gauge. Yeah. <laughs> It's a good game. This is what's happening for most people. So it's critical for them to learn to address stress and their thoughts and have some kind of practice where they're grounding and centering and relaxing every day. Wonderful, which is the opposite of all the electromagnetic chaos that we're exposed to that I do want to mention because I find so many patients with mold toxicity who have mast cell activation syndrome have major electromagnetic um, yeah. hypersensitivity. So there's a big relationship and I think they all drive each other, make each other worse. <laughs> Would you agree or do you want to expand on that? <laughs> Absolutely. So some of the things that really make people, there is a genetic variant, CAC1, I'm going to butcher this, CAC1NAC1, I think is the right way, is it? But there's actually calcium channel genetic variants that make people more um, electrosensitive. And the calcium channels are allowing calcium into the cell and then it increases glutamate levels, which can cause anxiety, insomnia, inflammation. But mycotoxins also affect that channel significantly. So do metals. I've been, since I had the braces, this is the other um, root cause I didn't talk about is airway obstructions. And so a lot of people whose parents didn't have good nutrition and they didn't have good nutrition in childhood have narrow dental Mm -hmm. um, plates. And mine was quite narrow and it's almost doubled in size with the braces. And it's been a huge shift, but the metal in my mouth makes me much more electrical sensitive. So my laptop is pushed away. Mm -hmm. I use a USB keyboard. I always use, I don't use Wi-Fi. I always use a hardwired connection. And the, the EMFs circling back around allow more calcium to enter the cell, which cause more excitation. So, yes, it, the, these are all interrelated, and there are things we need to focus on with these patients to get them better. Exactly. Yeah. So let's go back to mold for a moment. So you discovered you had mold toxicity, and I've heard you on other podcasts uh, share that you have been re-exposed on numerous occasions, unintentionally, of course. <laughs> so yeah. what is your favorite way to test your patients for mold toxicity, and then how do we tackle that? Well, the top ways that I use are urine testing. I Me use too. two panels um, simultaneously if we have the budget for it. I use real times, and I use Great Plains. 
The reason for both is because the Great Plains method is great for some of the mold toxins, but misses some of them. And the real times method is great for some of the mold toxins, but they miss some. And it's a smaller panel. They don't have as mm -hmm. many mold toxins on there. Those are the two that I found to be the most reliable. I've tried some different ones to see how it went and also checked in with some other practitioners who are doing this, and that's what they're noticing. The urine testing to be more accurate is really helpful if there can be some gentle provocation with glutathione and some sweating, but most people with mass activation don't tolerate heat. I have a few that can do sauna or can do hot showers, but typically we have to use glutathione. Sometimes people can't do either. And so I'll run the urine panels to see, sometimes we'll catch it, sometimes not. If somebody's super sensitive and they can't do provocation and we have a high suspicion, we might do blood antibody testing. Wonderful. So when we find that a patient has mold toxins inside them, then we have to remove them from the exposure, which many times is their residence, right? And we, or at least help them remediate, find the person that can help them remediate their home and then put them on binders. And I actually, I was talking to Dr. O'Hara before we started this podcast today, discussing how she was recently on the Better Health Guy blogcast, and there was a very interesting handout that was mentioned that was listed in the show notes that I have just I just started diving into regarding specific binders for specific mycotoxins because I've just heard conflicting opinions on that for a long time, um, which maybe we can talk about more after the show too. <laughs> yeah, um, but generally speaking, depending on who you listen to, uh, some providers aggressively use a medication called cholestyramine while other providers don't use that, they use more blends of activated charcoal and clay and pectin and zeolite, whatnot. So what are your favorite binders or do you really feel strongly that approach has to be personalized also? I believe it's got to be personalized for the majority of sensitive people and people with mass activation. If somebody has more mild mold toxicity and they don't have a lot of mass activation, which actually isn't common because of how much mold toxins cause mass activation, then maybe we can use a generalized approach. If there's not the budget for the testing, then I'll use a generalized approach and see where we get. Sure. The testing is so helpful because, for example, the binders that best bind okra toxin are completely different than the binders that best bind gliotoxin. And if I just do that okra toxin binder list, I'm going to miss it. I've also found a lot of people with mass activation don't do well with cholestyramine. Why is that, do you think? Because of the sweetener or even if it's compounded? I think partly because um, the regular kind usually has artificial sweeteners. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just too, too harsh. So the approach that I go with and, and my motto and my practice for the kind of people I work with is fast is going to be actually slow. But if we go slow, it's going to be faster in the long run. And that's because if we go too aggressively, we can set off a mast cell cascade where we start to trigger some mast cells in a localized area. They start to release their inflammatory mediators. They trigger the surrounding mast cells. And you can imagine how that can expand exponentially until somebody's in a several week or several month flare. But again, I'm seeing super, super sensitive people. So we always start with the gentlest binders first. So if it's called for, that might be charcoal and bentonite clay. 
And then things like zeolite or cholestyramine, if it was going to be used, um, or well call, sometimes better tolerated, then those would go on at the end of adding the binders in. Sure. I was unaware that Saccharomyces boulardii, however we pronounce that, was a binder. So that also can be beneficial for select cases. I'm looking at this spreadsheet right now as we talk. <laughs> yeah, we find it really most most helpful for gliotoxins. And gliotoxins I see create a lot of nervous system effects, insomnia, anxiety, sometimes um, trembling and things that look like Bell's palsy and seizures I see associated. Now, some of the other mold toxins can cause that as well. I just see a connection there with that gliotoxin. So that actually came from um, Dr. Neil Nathan. He's mm -hmm. the one that discovered the Saccharomyces boulardii. Very interesting, very interesting. So it sounds like mold toxicity and mast cell activation syndrome are extremely related. <laughs> so do you treat them concurrently? Or do you find that when you treat the mold, the mast cell activation syndrome reduces and then they don't need as aggressive a treatment? We have a, a blog post that lays this out, like kind of these stages so people can find them. So actually the first level for me is the limbic, the parasympathetic, and if needed, vagal nerve supports. Calm the system down. So a lot of times people aren't tolerating very many things when I see them. So we'll just calm that down, take that load off and do that for a good six weeks. And then depending on how much they're tolerating, if they're tolerating more, we can bring some of these mass cell supporting supplements in at the beginning. Then we'll go in and do the binders and we'll layer those on one at a time, slowly build them up. So we have a nice complement based on which mold toxins that they have. Then we'll do some phase two supports, detox supports. And what was really interesting in the research that we did around this, and so this research was done with Neil Nathan and Emily Givler. And we found that most practitioners were using glutathione for mold toxicity, but some mold toxins use glutathione to detox, but majority by far uses glucuronidation, which is a pathway a lot of people don't know about. And I didn't know about until I got volunteered for to present at a conference on it. So that was pretty incredible to figure that out. So that will accelerate the detox process to support that pathway with things like calcium deglucurate, if estrogen's not too low, and rosemary, um, dandelion root, some of these things are very helpful, terastilabine. And then the last phase is antifungals. And I see sometimes um, some practitioners will do antimicrobials and then put binders on board. But the, the order that works much better is to have those binders in place before bringing in those antimicrobials. That makes sense. I listened to your podcast on glucuronidation. You could talk for an hour on that, and, <laughs> and we won't get more into that. So you'll have to follow Dr. O'Hara <laughs> to learn more, or I can maybe have her back on the show. So that was very helpful. So thank you very much for mapping out what you do for your clients. I know that you have a free gift also on your website. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Mast Cell 360 and the, the gift that you have for our listeners? Sure, I would love to. So our website is at mastcell360.com. 
And we have a free report that I created on the most common root causes, the ones that we talked about, but you could spend an hour really on each one of those and still not scratch the surface. So that report takes people through each of the major root causes so that they can look through it and start to assess for themselves. Have these all been addressed? Because and not everybody has all, most people have three or four of those major root causes. I had all seven, but you can take a look and, and see, do I have this? Has it been addressed? And if it hasn't been addressed, then take that to your practitioner and say, hey, have we looked at this? Have we looked at hormone balance? And then go talk to Dr. Gray and consult with her and see what's going on there or find somebody to help you with EMFs or whatever's going on. And that, so that free report lets people step that through and gives them lots of information. We have tons of free articles on the blog, lots of information that you really can't find hardly anywhere else. And it was such a just difficult journey that I had putting this information together and getting myself well. And it was honestly an, a nightmare. And so if I can take that nightmare and then take everything that I learned in this journey of healing and help people get better faster and not have to spend $150,000, $200,000, then that makes it worth having gone through. Absolutely. Well, speaking of consultations, do you consult with patients nationally or internationally? <laughs> I do. I do. You know, our, my practice is all remote. We're booked for 2020, uh, but we're going to open up spots towards the end of the year. And so if people need help with mass activation, then they can join the um, email list there. We're going to announce when their spots open. And if people need to get started right now, then they can join that master class that I was talking about on the supplements. Sure. And that'll help them get through their first couple appointments, some of the things that I do with people. And then that way, when they're ready to come in from an appointment, they're already ahead of the game. Have that foundation laid. So what would your top longevity tip be if you had to pick one? That's a great question. Absolutely, hands down, top one would be working on the parasympathetic nervous system, relaxation, breathing. There's lots of great tools for that. So things like the Gupta program or DNRS. Um, there's a great headset called BrainTap. So these are some of the things that I recommend in my practice. But to dedicate at least 20 minutes a day to something like that, it's huge. And it this actually, there's so many solid studies that show that things like breathing practices, meditation, centering, shift genetic expression. And I don't think that just generally as a culture, we, we recognize the power of that. Totally agreed. It's interesting. I ask so many people this question and many of the guests top recommendation is adapting some sort of calming <laughs> practice, calm the nervous system. So we're hearing it over and over and over again. And if all these very intelligent experts <laughs> are recommending it, it's certainly something we need to be incorporating. So thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing the nightmare of your story <laughs> uh, using what you learned to create mass cell 360, which is a tremendous resource, which I am looking forward to checking out more deeply and for taking your course. So we appreciate you. Thank you for again, sharing your story. Thank you so much. And thank you for getting all this amazing information out here for people. You bet. What a wealth of knowledge Dr. O'Hara was. Finding mast cell activation syndrome can truly be an answer for so many individuals struggling with mysterious symptoms. So please check out mast cell 360. And as always, please share with those in need. 
Be sure to check out my book, Your Longevity Blueprint. And if you aren't much of a reader, you're in luck. You can now take my course online where I walk you through each chapter in the book. Plus, for a limited time, not only is the course 50% off, but you also get your first consult with me for free. Check this offer out at yourlongevityblueprint.com and click the course tab. One of the biggest things you can do to support the show and help us reach more listeners is to subscribe to the show and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I read all of the reviews and would truly love to hear your suggestions for show topics, guests, or how you're applying what you've learned on the show to create your own longevity blueprint. The podcast is produced by the team at Counterweight Creative. As always, thanks so much for listening and remember, wellness is waiting. The information provided in this podcast is educational. No information provided should be considered to be or used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always consult with your personal medical authority.